Hey, Harbor City, uh, Andy Rogers here uh, from Restored Uptown. If I haven't met you, uh, nice to meet you. Uh, if I've seen you before, I, I long to see your face again. Um, it is a joy to preach to you and a privilege to kick off your new series uh, on Holy Week. And Holy Week uh, is traditionally the end of the Lent season in the, in the kind of the traditional church calendar, and it ends with three days. And those three days are um, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, which leads to our big celebration uh, that we celebrate as Easter Sunday. And chronologically, kind of, you guys are going to work through those. So that means that today we're going to start with Good Friday. And that's what we'll be looking at today. And to look at Good Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified, we're going to dive into um, a text of Scripture, uh, John chapter 19. Before we dive into that text of Scripture, though, I want to set up the context of this passage. Um, if you had read John's gospel to this point, you would know that in the last chapter or the day before this, that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, or so he thought, one of his closest 12 disciples, Judas. And he was arrested by the religious leaders on false charges. And then um, over the, the, the over, overnight, basically, into the wee hours of the morning, he was given a sham trial by those religious leaders. And now they have brought him before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who is the only man in the entire province who has the right to put someone to death. So the religious leaders want to put him to death, but they don't have the right to do that. So they've brought him before this powerful man, Pontius Pilate. And the charge that they have brought Jesus to Pilate over is one that they think will resonate with Pontius Pilate. And it's the charge of treason or rebellion against the Roman government. And so just imagine this for a second. It's Passover week, which means Pilate is on high alert. It's the time of year when hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims flood the city of Jerusalem. And the Roman leadership in Israel is always nervous during Passover because it's a time of the year where they are outmanned. There are way more pilgrims than there are soldiers. And it's also the time of year. It's kind of a double whammy. It's also the time of year when God's people celebrate how God had liberated them from an oppressive government in the past, and many wonder if maybe they should try and see if God will help them be liberated again. So the political tension in the air is thick. I've traveled to places in the world, places like Northern Ireland, or even places like South Africa, where there have been moments where it felt like civil war was just around the corner and political tension was thick. This is the, the feel of Jerusalem during this week. Pilate would have doubled his number of soldiers in the city. And now in that context, he has brought this prisoner who the religious leaders claim is leading a revolution, a rebellion. And because it's the Passover, this really gets Pilate's attention, but very quickly into talking to and interviewing Jesus, he realizes that something's not quite right. He realizes rather quickly that Jesus is not a revolutionary. He's not leading a rebellion. He sees very quickly that the religious leaders are just out to kill him. And so uh, to Pilate's credit, he wants to clear Jesus of the charges he's accused of. So he comes up with a plan to get Jesus off. 
Again, it's during Passover, uh, and so the Roman governor would traditionally release one political prisoner as an act of goodwill and kind of to keep the peace, again, during this tumultuous time of, of the year for the Roman government in Israel. And so Pilate, uh, in the last chapter, he came out to the crowd and he offers to release Jesus, the king of the Jews, knowing that even though the religious leaders hate him, that the people seem to love Jesus. But what Pilate didn't know was that while he was inside with Jesus, the religious leaders have been outside with the crowd, firing up the crowd to the point that they sound like Springbok fans during a, a, a rowdy World Cup run, right? You know, Sia Khaleesi scoring a try, everyone losing their minds. The crowd is riled up, and they're not riled up for a, uh, you know, a rugby or a soccer win. They are riled up because they want a guilty terrorist named Barabbas released instead of Jesus. And so Barabbas is released. Pilate's plan to get Jesus off falls apart. And so Pilate's plan A isn't working. He moves to plan B. And as we jump into John chapter 19, verse 1, we're going to see Pilate try to execute his plan B so that he does not have to execute Jesus. All right, so if you have Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 19. In John 19, 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And so he had Jesus flogged, um, that he is being whipped, right, with these whips that have um, hooks in them. They're ripping off his flesh. If you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it's a fairly realistic de depiction. And Pilate did this. Uh, it's not his preference again, but he's doing this. His goal was to get the crowds to have pity on Jesus. He's hoping they'll see this man bleeding and, and be like, let's let him go. This is messed up, man. But what he doesn't know is how bloodthirsty the crowds have become and how far the Roman soldiers would take this beating. Verse 2 through 3, it says, The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were slapping him in the face. So they banged. Don't think small thorns. Think big thorns. Uh, they banged those thorns into his head and into his temples. And he's bleeding. And one by one, they look at the king of the universe and they mock him. They, they sarcastically kneel in reverence, pretending he is a king, and they hit him in the face over and over and over again. He would have looked pretty bad at this point. And, and Pilate's going to, again, appeal to the crowd's pity, hoping that when they see Jesus, they will drown out the religious leaders and call for his release, and he can avoid a riot and also avoid putting an innocent man to death. So let's see what happens. Verse 4 through 5, Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. So again, Pilate says, Behold the man. Pilate is like, look at this man. I think he's innocent. And look at what has happened to this innocent man. Is this enough for you? But the crowds are too pumped up. Again, they're out for blood. And here's what's wild about this passage. I think we often think, at least I do, I think if I was there, I would have fought to have kept Jesus from being treated unjustly. I would have rescued him. 
But if we're honest with ourselves, we likely would have joined in with the crowd yelling, crucify him. Again, he's the reason, we are the reason that he had to be crucified. Verse 6 says this, When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. Verse 7, We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. Okay, so there is a political and psychological chess match happening here between the religious leaders on one hand and Pilate on the other. Um, Usually in sports, you'll hear about something called big match or big game temperament. And the idea of big game temperament or or big match temperament is that... um, the more pressure there is in a game, the the higher the stakes of a match, the more important it is, like in a championship or something, that there are some sportsmen, some athletes, who have the mental uh, toughness to rise to the occasion of a pressure-filled big moment. And then there are other guys who um, are exploited because of their lack of mental toughness. Um, Pilate has no big match temperament. Uh, The leaders of the mob have succeeded in getting into Pilate's head, especially because Pilate is a superstitious pagan Roman. And so they say, according to the Old Testament law, he must die because he claimed to be a son of God. Now, Pilate would have understood the title son of God very differently than, than they did. To the Jewish leaders, the term son of God was you know, an act of blasphemy on Jesus' part. He was saying he was claiming equality with God, with the one true God of Israel. But Pilate, being a Roman pagan, most likely believed in many gods and in the possibility that some human beings actually were the children of the gods, kind of half man, half God, like Hercules, who they believed was, you know, descended from Zeus. And so to Pilate, the son of God would be a demigod, possessing supernatural powers, including the power to take revenge on anyone who wronged him. So Pilate kind of thinks, I'm I'm crucifying an X-man here. You know, I'm crucifying Wolverine here. And so Pilate's probably freaking out. I mean, he's already judged Jesus as innocent and then had him subjected to humiliation and torture. If this man really was a son of God, what sort of revenge would you know, this Jesus, Wolverine, mutant, demigod take out on Pilate later. And so the religious leaders have Pilate where they want him, vulnerable, afraid, insecure. And so he pulls Jesus back inside to have a word. This just blows my mind, this exchange. Let's read it in verse 9. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Then Jesus responds, and this is amazing. Verse 11, You have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him. If it hadn't been given to you from above, this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And so Pilate asks, where are you from? And Jesus Jesus is confidently quiet in the face of death. And this freaks out Pilate. What a picture of the courage and strength of Jesus, by the way. 
I think we often think of Jesus as this kind of, you know, mild-mannered, meek, afraid man. He was a gentle man, but he was not a weak man. Meek does not mean weak. He stares power down and doesn't flinch. Jesus's big game temperament is unmatched. And the reason he doesn't flinch is because he knows who is actually in charge, his father, the king of the universe. Jesus knows who he is and whose he is. He, he, knows, he knows that there is no injustice that will end that way, that every wrong will be made right. Every injustice will meet justice. And so Jesus is unimpressed by Pilate's so-called power because he knows who holds the true power. And he knows that Pilate's delegated authority, the power that he holds as a human being, has been given to him to steward, but it's not, it doesn't originate from him. I believe that we all need to have this view of life and those who hold authority over us in it. Remember the reply of Jesus here when your boss mistreats you, when coworkers spread rumors about you, if you feel wronged by the government or anything like that. Again, we live in a world where everyone freaks out about what governments or politicians can do to them. We live in an outrage, outrage culture, the culture of social media, where people seem to compete over who can be more outraged and more anxious about politics or power dynamics. Again, in my country, we just had a fairly contested election. Again, uh, the entire world right now is dealing with the COVID pandemic and different governments' responses to that pandemic. Um, I, I just watched a video yesterday of a delegation from my country in the United States getting into a heated back and forth with another geopolitical giant, a delegation from China. It almost can feel like anything can happen right now politically. People are constantly freaking out about who is in control and what, that might, and what they might be plotting. Followers of Jesus should never be swept into this kind of thinking. So many so-called Christians seem to be the most affected by politics and trust in its power to save them or are anxious over its power to crush them. Again, the scripture is clear in the New Testament. We should honor the role of those in power, but we shouldn't be intimidated by them either. In so many situations, we need to remember that God is in charge of human life and no one exercises authority over us that God does not permit. They will answer for how they wielded that power one day. And if they wielded it in an unjust, corrupt way, that answering will be brutal. This perspective will serve us well as we wrestle with problems of injustice or corruption in our governments or in those who have authority over us. One scholar put it this way, this is not a perfect world, nor is God engaged at this time in making it a perfect world. One day he will dry every eye and heal every hurt and restore the world to its original perfection as it was before the fall. But for now there is injustice and there is pain. Jesus is our model for facing unjust, painful circumstances. Our response to evil circumstances and evil people should be the same as that of Jesus. You have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. All right, let's pick it up in verse 12 now, okay? John 19, 12. It says, From the moment Pilate kept trying to release him, 
but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, Pilate would have been put in charge of Israel by Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And the Caesar had a habit, the head of the Roman Empire, of putting to death or imprisoning any rulers he appointed who did not display absolute loyalty to Rome. So when the crowd starts screaming, you aren't a friend of Caesar if you release this guy. And, it, and as a riot looks like it's starting to form, Pilate basically gives up. Like most bad leaders, he caves to the opinion of the, of, of the, the popular opinion. Uh, he caves to the fear of man, as we'll see in these next few verses. Verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down to the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement, but in Aramaic. Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And then the crowd responds, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answers, answered, then they handed him over to be crucified. So in true politician form, Pilate caves to the crowd, and we could really judge him for that. But if we're honest with ourselves, though, we aren't much better than Pilate is here. So often, um, we know that when we're insecure, we're all capable of caving on what we know to be true. What Pilate does here is he essentially denies Jesus. And, and we, as people who claim to be followers of Jesus, can downplay our commitment to Jesus to get the world's approval. We can even deny Jesus in the favor of popular opinion. So you see so often with Christian celebrities or Christian politicians that they cave on what matters for the approval of modern culture. I mean, again, we can judge Pilate, but we are, aren't we all capable of this? Haven't you denied Jesus when you could have spoken up for him? Maybe never before a crowd of thousands as a government leader, but maybe before an office or a sales team or at a family dinner or in front of the, the re, or in front of the person we're dating that maybe we shouldn't be dating peter himself a great apostle just did this roughly 8 hours before when he denied jesus 3 times so we're all capable of this verse 16 again says then he then he handed him over to be crucified then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. It says there they crucified him because in that culture they would have known exactly um, what that meant. They would have understood crucifixion. Um, and so, yeah, three Greek words, get, get the job done. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then many of the Jewish leaders read the sign um, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written, right? Jesus, King of the Jews. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Right? So everyone could read it. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but could you write, I... I said, I am the king of the Jews. 
Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. And so these religious leaders are petty. To the very end, they're jealous of Jesus, even when he's hanging on a cross. And Pilate's like, I, I've had enough. What I've wrote, I've wrote. Just shut up and leave me alone. Verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. So I want you to see this. Jesus, uh, likely crucifixion this day, he would have been crucified naked. Um, he's got five pieces of clothes. Uh, again, they've taken his clothes off. And um, there's these four soldiers there, and they each get one piece. They can sell it, and there's this one last piece. And they go, hey, like, let's roll dice for this last one. One of us will get two pieces of clothing, and we can sell that clothing. Which, by the way, clothing back then was made very well. Uh, had to last, and, um, and you'd only have a few pieces of clothing. And so if you could sell some of that, it'd be, it'd be worth some money. And as they cast die to decide who would get this extra thing to sell, uh, they were actually fulfilling a prophecy. And where it's in bold here in your Bible, um, it's actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 18. And the interesting thing about Psalm 22, 18 is it was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Right? It's fascinating. I'd encourage you, by the way, to read all of Psalm 22 in the next week or two as it looks at Jesus on the cross, um, a prediction of that, which is amazing. All right, verse 25 says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. You have these four women near the cross. You have John near the cross. Um, Crosses weren't that tall, by the way. I think we have kind of a religious picture of a cross that's very tall. Uh, crosses would have been a little higher than the average person's height. So they're not super high up like it looks like in art. So imagine Jesus kind of right in front of you. He's naked. His flesh would have been exposed from the whipping. He's struggling to breathe. His mother is watching this happen. I cannot think of a worse thing than to watch your child die before your eyes and not just die any death, but, but a death involving torture, a shameful, painful, public death, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Her helplessness must have felt overwhelming. The trauma off the charts. Now, again, we've already seen the amazing strength and courage of Jesus when he calmly dealt with Pilate earlier. But in the text I just read, we also see another remarkable side of Jesus, his love and compassion on full display. He is, he's courageous and he is loving at the same time. Again, these verses blow my mind. Think about it for a second. Jesus has been up all night, betrayed by one of his closest friends, unjustly arrested and convicted, mocked, humiliated, rejected, whipped with whips, with hooks until his flesh came off his body. He's carried the crossbeam of his cross. He has had nails driven through his wrists and his feet. 
with his bloody naked body for all to see. He is hanging on the cross, cross gasping for air, and he is thinking about who is going to take care of his mother. When love is costly, we know it's real. Again, if, if this was happening to us, you and I would definitely feel sorry for ourselves and be, be pretty self-focused. But Jesus is, is thinking about his mom and about John. Jesus' love was so real. Paul Miller in his exquisite book, Love Walked Among Us, says that love is having a mind that is full of someone else. On the cross, Jesus' mind was absolutely full of someone else. Mary and John were on his mind and on his heart while he was on that cross. But his mind was not just on his mother and John. It was also on you, you and me. What a savior, what a friend, what a brother we have in Jesus. The Bible says that, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and the joy was us. We're the thing he lacked because of our rebellion, because the relationship was fractured. He had everything he needed in heaven, but he wanted us. He saw us. He pursued us. He came for us. He died for us. Sorry. Something else I'm struck by in this account is how big what Jesus is doing on the cross is. And how little Mary seems. But just like Jesus sees his, his mom and he sees John, some of you need, need to know today that Jesus sees you. You might feel like with what I have going on, he must have forgotten about me. You need to know that he hasn't left you, that he's not forsaking you. If his eyes could see the Marys and Johns from the cross, I promise you his eyes can see you from the throne of grace. Keep reading. John 19, verse 28, it says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. I'm um, in this text, uh, it says, after this. Uh, it's kind of um, a confusing translation. It really means later in the day, not like just after this, like seconds later. Um, and actually, it's kind of like in South Africa, when you guys say things like, uh, I'll see you just now. You actually don't mean just now. You usually mean in a few hours. So um, the text, this translation here is a little confusing, just like you guys are. Just kidding. All right. Pick it up in verse 29. We're almost done. It says, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. The phrase uh, throughout John's gospel, um, my hour has not yet come, is said over and over again. And now Jesus's hour has finally come. After Jesus dies, it's getting close to sunset when the Sabbath begins for the Jewish people. And Sabbath during Passover is a big Sabbath. Uh, there's a law in the Old Testament that said, if you execute someone, don't let them hang on a tree overnight. And so the religious leaders are freaking out. Again, the irony of these religious leaders who have just had the Son of God unjustly murdered are obsessed with obeying the rules of the Old Testament law. 
religion is the worst. Again, you've just killed the Son of God unjustly, but you want to make sure you do it the right way. Keep reading verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the body to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the man's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, the other guy next to Jesus, and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. And so um, they stabbed Jesus with a spear. His chest cavity would have filled up with blood and serum. It's proof that he's dead. I want to make sure he's dead. And John is like, I'm an eyewitness. I want you to know that Jesus was dead. He didn't just pass out. He died. John goes uh, so far as to say the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true, meaning that John himself, the eyewitness author of the account, gives his affirmation as if he was swearing an oath in a court of law. Again, he even makes a point of the fact that the plasma and the heba goblin of his blood had separated by the time his side was pierced, a circumstance that science tells us only takes place when the circulation is stopped and death has occurred. Now, John has just described how Jesus died, but I want, to, uh, I want to spend the rest of our time not just talking about how Jesus died, but what he accomplished for us by dying for us. Now, there are many things that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, but there's one I really want to look at today, and it's our new standing before God, our justification. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, talking about John the Baptist. It says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is a reference back to the Passover in the Old Testament where God commanded Israel to, um, to, to, to kill a lamb as a sacrifice. Um, and God told Israel, When you slaughter the lamb, don't break any bones. Use a hip-up plant to splatter the blood and put it over the doorposts, and I won't judge you for your sin. And it's interesting that the Roman soldiers couldn't break the bones of Jesus. Not only did it fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 22, it also um, showed Jesus embodying, um, you know, being the new Lamb of God. Um, he's the Lamb, it's, it's a, and here's the big idea. He is the Lamb of God, which means there is a new beginning. When the Passover happened for the people of Israel, there was a new beginning. The lamb was slain that led to a new beginning. The Passover, again, was a new beginning for the children of Israel, released from bondage. And for you and I, the cross is a whole new beginning for us who have trusted in the blood of the lamb. Sin is forgiven through the blood of the lamb, and it always has been throughout the scriptures. Some of you at some point may have, been asked, may have asked Jesus to forgive you. You've asked God to forgive you based on what Jesus did on the cross to take away sin. There are others of you watching uh, who for whatever reason have never asked Jesus to forgive you. 
You need to know that you can ask God to pass over your sins and give you a brand new start of life if you trust in the blood of the Lamb. Maybe you've been holding back because there's something you have done that keeps you from starting over, from getting this fresh new start. You might think um, forgiveness, uh, that grace is for other people, but it's not for you. You might think to yourself, Andy, if you knew about the adultery or the abortion or the lying or the stealing or the betrayal or whatever it is that you did that you think God cannot forgive, I want to tell you you are wrong. What I need you to know is there is nothing he cannot forgive. You are uh, right in seeing that what you have done is awful. But you would be wrong to believe that Jesus can't die for people that do awful things. That's all of us. So that's some of you. Um, for, for those of you who maybe, some of you would say you believe that Jesus can forgive you, but you haven't experienced the death of Jesus. Again, we often believe it, but we don't experience it. And the way it shows up in our lives is that for many of us, we're still plagued with guilt over something we did in our past. And it keeps us awake at night. We can't release it. We think it's too big. But here's what the death of Jesus means for us. It means that every sin you've ever, ever committed in the past and every sin you will ever commit in the future is taken away. It's not covered over or swept under the rug. It's taken away. It is finished. Every single sin you have ever committed, if your faith is in Jesus, he has taken it on himself and he takes it away from you. He is punished in your place for your sin. If you trust in Jesus and you ask him to cover your sin with his blood, you are free to move in to your future. Every day is a new day because of Jesus, if you've trusted in him. Every sin is paid for, not ignored, but paid for. You don't have to wonder anymore, did, did the cross cover that? Could he cover that? Could he cover it again? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sin and he justifies us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, even though he never sinned, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians have called this the great exchange, the idea that on the cross Jesus is treated as if he had lived my sinful, wicked life. And that when, when I put my faith in him, I am treated as if I had lived Jesus' perfect, sinless life. And now God sees me, Andy Rogers, not as he ought to, but he sees me through the lens of his son. He sees me as righteous. I experienced this recently in a fresh way. Jesus died to give us a new start, but, but, but we had to receive that. We have to receive that gift in faith to experience that fresh start. Uh, again, I saw how the gift of another has to be received in faith recently, how it has to be received in trust. Um, about a year and a half ago now, I was riding in a car with my son, and I got a phone call. Um, we we're in the back of an Uber, and I got a phone call. And a man I hardly know calls me, and, and he's from another one of our churches, and, and I don't really even know him that well. He's an older gentleman, and, and he called me, and he, he just said, hey, Andy, um, you know, did you get our message? And I, he had left me a voicemail. I hadn't gotten it. And he said, hey, um, I'm with my wife right now. You're on speaker. And I said, okay. I don't really know what's going on. And, and then this guy began to talk to me. He said, hey, we just wanted to let you know that we heard that... Um, uh, 
you'd like to buy a house someday and that you, you're not able to. And, um, and he just said, hey, I just want to let you know that my wife and I, we want to give you a down payment for a house. We want to give you 140,000 you know, US dollars, 20%. Uh, so you can, you can buy a house. And, um, and I'm going to be honest with you guys, I, I didn't understand. I was confused. I was freaked out. I thought it was a trick. I hardly knew this guy. Um, he just said, listen, I'm, I'm, he, he's a wealthy guy. He said, listen, um, I don't need any more money. Uh, I just came into a huge inheritance. My, my children are wealthy already. They have their own businesses. I'm wealthy. Um, you don't need to feel guilty. Um, I prayed and asked God, what can I do with this money to bless people? And you were the one of the people that we want to bless. And I just started crying. And I, I just, again, it was just so overwhelming. Now, that act of generosity was insane, but it pales into, in comparison to the gift we have already received or that we can receive through the cross of Jesus, right? I had to receive that gift. Even though this couple was willing to pay in my pride or my, you know, whatever, self-loathing, I, I could refuse his gift. I could say, I don't need your money. Who are you to assume you have resources I don't have? And I could have tried to pay for it myself and I could have tried to, you know, keep saving and to, to get to 20%, but the, you know, Real estate market keeps going up and, and I could never actually buy a home. So again, I could have said, hey, um, who are you to assume I don't have the resources I need to buy a house? Spiritually, this is like the proud religious person, a person who before God actually doesn't have the resources they need to pay off their debt. But we'll try anyways. On the other hand, I could say, I don't deserve your money. I can't take it. <laughs> I did say that, uh, I did say that by the way, and he said, um, I know you don't deserve it, but I wanna give it to you. And then he reminded me that Jesus had given him a gift he didn't deserve, right? Like, but I could have said, listen, I don't deserve it and not given him my banking details. This is too much, I don't deserve it. Now spiritually, this would be like the person who thinks they're too bad to be forgiven. I'm too bad to be forgiven, right? So religious people go, who are you to think that I need your forgiveness? Who are you to think I can't pay my bill myself? Other people go, I, I can't pay my bill. I, I'm too bad, um, right? Or, and this is a big or, I could say, I cannot pay myself. I don't deserve it. But I humbly and gratefully receive your insane sacrificial gift, your beautiful sacrifice. It's the same with Jesus. We have to receive the gift. We, had, we have to admit we have need we have to let him meet our need through faith. This is why believing in Jesus for, for salvation isn't an arbitrary thing. You'll often hear the charge that it's vain in a pluralistic society to claim that your religion is the true religion. Why Jesus and not Muhammad? Why Jesus and not the Buddha? It seems arbitrary and proud that your God person is, is God. And the reason is that it's, it, it's not just, uh, the reason um, it's not an arbitrary, an arbitrary thing, it's not like you just pick out your favorite savior, is because um, me saying I believe in Jesus instead of Buddha is saying I'm trusting another to do for me what I could not do for myself. It's not just like picking the right God. It's, it's who's the God that's going to actually meet your needs. Every other faith says do these things to attain salvation. The Christian should humbly say, I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. 
but I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. Again, it would be ridiculous for me to say, I'm so much better than all these people who can't buy houses in Southern California. Right? Oh, you couldn't save a down payment? Right? No. That'd be crazy because the story of our house is a story of grace. This guy called me and offered me a, he offered to give us what we didn't have or deserve. Through a combination of being from families without money, unwise decisions, and church planning, to require financial sacrifice, we were so far behind in saving that the only way it would be possible for us to buy a house is if someone just decided to give us over $100,000. There's no pride in that. That being said, the facts are that not everyone in this world was making that offer to me. To say that, um, to say that this man um, paid my down payment isn't a matter of arrogance, but of fact. He's the only one who was offering to give me a down payment. It's not exclusive to say that. It's just true. Friends, Jesus is the only one offering to pay your penalty. So faith in Jesus saves us because it is saying, I believe you can meet my need. I believe you will meet my need. I trust that your sacrifice for my debt will clear in the economy of heaven that you will pay off my sin, that you will take my sins away. I'm trusting that your sacrifice was enough and that there's nothing I can do in and of myself to make that happen. Later on in the process of buying a house, I had to sign loan documents promising that I would wire the down payment money over into an account by a certain date. Now here's the thing, I signed those documents before the money was in my account. I trusted that the people who had the down payment would wire it to meet my need to pay a debt I could not pay myself. And through this couple's sacrificial generosity, my wife and I were given a financial fresh start, a different future we could walk into. Through the sacrificial generosity of Jesus, you and I have been given a new spiritual start in life, a new future we can walk into. As amazing as the generosity of that man was, it's not a perfect analogy because Jesus bought us the whole house. There is no spiritual loan where we try to pay it off. And like we see in John's gospel, he pays it in full. To die is what it says in Greek, which means it is finished. And friends, this is what makes Good Friday good. Have you experienced that goodness? Do you know the joy of truly believing and experiencing that your sins are forgiven forever and you are reconciled to God completely? Again, this is what makes Good Friday good. And it's why it's one of three days that changed the world. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, thank you for your radical, sacrificial gift of a death, a death you did not deserve, a death where you took on the shame that I deserve, the sin that I've committed, the guilt that I have stacked up, the debt that I have accrued. You took that upon yourself and you gave me an inheritance. You gave me forgiveness. You gave me intimacy instead of estrangement. You, you exchanged all of that for me and those who trust in you, not because we're better than anyone else, 
but because we choose to, we, we chose to trust that you are better than anyone else. We choose to trust that you could do what only you could do. So Lord, would you show us that we have a need? But Lord, would you show us that you have met that need and then some in the person and work of Jesus? So we love you, Jesus. We are grateful for you, Jesus. Father, thank you for revealing the Son to us. Spirit, thank you for leading us into the truth of what Jesus did for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Hope to see you soon.